Please turn in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 23. Our study through the Gospel of Matthew has brought us to a new chapter, chapter 23. And as we move into Matthew chapter 23, the setting is still the temple court, the temple courtyard, I should say. Uh, We've seen this for several chapters now that Christ's enemies have um, uh, confronted Jesus as he's been teaching there in the in the temple, and they attacked him with a series of questions, uh, seeking to to uh, trap him, seeking to discredit him, uh, really seeking to find a means by which they could um, prosecute him and have him killed. But as they did that, we've we've seen that in each case, each question they brought, each trap they tried to set, each test they put before Jesus. In each case, he answered uh, with authority, with wisdom, with power, so much so that his enemies dared not ask him any more questions we saw at the end of chapter 22. There, Christ literally silenced them by the way he was answering these questions. And, and so then we saw last week, it, it was Jesus then who turned the tables. He asked them a question, right? And he asked them a question about the identity of the Messiah, Remember, the Messiah is the, means the anointed one. It means the promised king that God was sending to, to rescue his people and to rule over them. And so Jesus asked them about that. He showed them from a, a, a statement in the Old Testament, a statement by David that David made through the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110. And that statement said that the promised Messiah would be more than simply a human king. Jesus showed that that, that verse pointed to the fact that, that the Messiah, Jesus, standing right before them, the Messiah would be both fully man and fully God. And so, um, again, Jesus is not only confronting the religious leaders who, don't, who are rejecting him, who don't believe he's the Messiah, but remember, there's crowds gathered around, and so he wants the crowds to be recognizing and, and, and considering who the Messiah really is. So that for quite a while, there's been this back and forth, right, between Jesus and the, and the re- Jewish religious leaders. They ask him a question, he answers with authority. Now he's asked them a question, and they had that discussion. But again, there's crowds gathered around. And we're going to see that stated explicitly today in chapter 23. Because when this first started in the temple courts... Um, Jesus was teaching a crowd, and then that was when he was um, confronted by the religious leaders. And if you use your sanctified imagination, I'm I'm betting that as there's been this back and forth between the the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians, as there's been this back and forth in the public uh, courtyard here, I bet even more people have gathered, right? Hey, what's going on? Oh, ooh, you know, that was a good point, right? So now there's just even more... Uh, a larger crowd gathered around, and so Jesus turns his attention to them and specifically to his disciples who have been witnessing this whole um, interaction as well. So let's read verses 1 through 12. That's going to be our text today. Um, Jesus, having silenced the religious leaders, he's going to, in this passage, address the crowds and his disciples, and we'll see He's going to do so in order to warn them 
about these religious leaders in order to warn them to no longer follow these wicked leaders who've been confronting Jesus. So would you stand please once again in honor of God's word and follow along as I read verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. Well, you can see from this passage that Jesus exposes the pride and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, and and he calls his people to follow him in humble service. Quit following these guys. They're they're leading you astray. They're wicked. And so in in denouncing them, and and the chapter is going to continue with him directly um, declaring woes on the religious leaders. We won't get to that today. But in in denouncing them, Jesus is calling the crowds to follow him, the the one who is, is righteous, the one who is truly sent from God. So the title of the sermon today is Holiness not hypocrisy. Holiness, not hypocrisy. Right? Isn't that what God wants from his people? God wants to see increasing holiness and not hypocrisy in the lives of his people. I mean, isn't hypocrisy like a, just a, a dirty word? Right? When you think about what hypocrisy is, what hypocrisy does, it just kind of, ugh, Right? Because hypocrisy has devastating effects, doesn't it? Some of you have probably experienced those effects. Hypocrisy hinders people from following Christ. And it reviles the name of Christ, right? Because when those who, are, who claim to be Christians, when they're acting selfishly and, and unloving and they're just as anxious and angry and selfish and wicked as, as the world around them, then unbelievers who witness that are like, well, why in the world should I follow Christ? It's not making any difference in the life of that person. Right? And matter of fact, it's, it's, it's really worse because they kind of claim to be one way on, on a Sunday morning and then the, the rest of the week, they're, they're a totally different way. Right? That's hypocrisy. And it, and it can create huge stumbling blocks for people that, you know, perhaps were considering following Christ. Right? It leads people astray, it trips them up, it, it, it um, exasperates them, it, it jades them, if that's the right way to say, is that a verb, right? It leaves them jaded, right? 
Hypocrisy in spiritual leaders is especially damaging. Right? And that is exactly what was happening in Jesus' day. The religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were leading people astray by their legalism and by their hypocrisy, by their hypocritical lives. So again, here in verses 1 through 12, Jesus warns the crowds and he warns his disciples not to follow the religious leaders because of their false teaching, because of their hypocrisy. And in so doing then, Jesus is calling the crowds to follow him instead. He's he's reiterating, he is the promised king sent from God. He is the one who has come to save his people and he is the one who will reign in righteousness There's no hypocrisy in Jesus. There's no um, sin in Jesus, right? There's no uh, leading astray. So as we work our way through verses 1 through 12, you can see the theme that I'm wanting to emphasize today, the theme that I I, I felt like stood out to me in this passage. I'm going to draw, as we work our way, I'll try to just explain verses 1 through 12. But as we do that, I want to be pointing out and drawing out three applications from Christ's teaching that will help us, I trust, pursue holiness and will also help us guard uh, our hearts, guard our lives from hypocrisy. We don't want to be hypocrites, right? God forbid that we would be a stumbling block to someone through our hypocrisy. So let's look at verse 1 then. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples... The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Let's stop there and, and, and explain that chunk so far. The seat of Moses, right? You see that in verse 2. He says, the scribe and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. The seat of Moses was a symbolic way of referring to the authority of Moses, right? The, the lawgiver. The scribes and Pharisees had appointed themselves. You, you see that from the, 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 the Greek there. They had appointed themselves as the authoritative teachers and leaders of the Jewish people. Now then, that's verse 2, basically. Verse 3 is a little tricky. Let me, the sentence starts back in verse 2, so let's start there. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, verse 3, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. Now at first reading, it sounds like Jesus is saying, follow the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, but don't follow their example. Right? That's kind of what it sounds like at, at first reading. And there are those who hold to that interpretation. And, and, and those who, who hold to that would say that Jesus is saying, right? the caveat would be Jesus is saying, follow the teaching of the religious leaders insofar as they accurately interpret Scripture. But the problem with that, and, and that interpretation is possible, Uh, that understanding of verse 3 is possible, but the problem I have with that is there's been several times already, right, just going through the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus has flat out said that the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees is wrong. 
For example, Jesus clashed with their teaching on on the Sabbath in chapter 12, on, on purity in chapter 15, on divorce in chapter 19. And remember way back in the Sermon on the Mount, right, 5 through 7, Jesus corrected the externalism and legalism of the scribal tradition, right? Remember he would say, you have heard it said this, but I say to you. He did that over and over again, and in doing that, he was correcting and confronting their, their tradition that they had attached to the law. And I'll say more about that later. And in 1612, Jesus warned his disciples. If you would look back at Matthew 1612, he warned his disciples to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So, you know, when you, when you see those examples, it's like, no, I think Jesus was pretty much saying, <laughs> don't listen to the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Their teaching is wrong. It's focused on externals. It's infused with this sense of, of self-righteousness. Therefore, I don't believe that Jesus here in verse 3 is telling the crowd and his disciples to obey the relig- religious leaders where you can. And the, the other in- way you can try to interpret verse 3 is this. And this is the way that makes more sense to me. That Jesus is actually being sarcastic here. <laughs> in verse 2 and in the beginning of verse 3. It would be something like this. Well... The scribes and Pharisees appointed themselves to have the place of authority, right? The seat of Moses. So by all means, do whatever they tell you. Wink, wink, you know. I, I know that's, um, that's a little tricky, but that makes sense to me. That, that That is what Jesus would be saying here. I believe he's telling the crowds to reject the scribes and the Pharisees. Because their teaching is often wrong and their lives are certainly hypocritical. So no matter which way you take verse, the beginning of verse 3, whether you think Jesus is being sarcastic about following their teaching or whether you, you don't, it's clear from verses, the rest of verse 3 and verse 4 that he does not want people to follow their example. Right? That comes out crystal clear. But do not follow the works that they do. Right? For they preach... But do not practice. They tie up, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. You see what he's saying? And he's said this already explicitly, and he will again. He's saying the scribes and the Pharisees are hypocrites. They do not practice what they preach, right? We have that saying, don't we? Practice what you preach. Well, he's just said they don't do that. They may teach on the importance of worship and love for neighbor from the Old Testament, but they are not worshiping God from a pure heart, from a genuine, sincere heart. They are not showing love for their fellow Jew because look at what they're doing. They're placing heavy burdens on their Jewish brethren. How? Through their legalistic, rabbinical tradition. And again, remember what they were doing. They, loaded, they would teach God's law... And, and God's law, the, the, God's pure law, right, the word of God, is good. But what they would do is they would add all these additional rules as like protective hedges around the law, extending out from the law. 
And by doing so, they completely exasperated the people and they sucked out all the, any joyful worship of God. Remember the, the whole discussion about the Sabbath, right? You know, the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing. The Sabbath was meant to be a time of rest where you can focus on God. But no, what had they done? They had put all these rules to make sure you didn't break the Sabbath and they were completely missing the heart of the Sabbath. And so they loaded people down. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 4. They load people down with these heavy burdens of their tradition and they never tried to help people with those burdens. No, instead they insisted that their tradition was authoritative, right? That's the other piece to this is they would put these hedges, these extra rules around God's law, but then they, they elevated that, their tradition, their extra rules, they elevated that to the place of Scripture, so, I mean, these were non-negotiable. This was not just like, well, you know, this is a way you could apply, you know, God's law here. No, it's like, you better do this, or you better not do this, right? And so it was a burden. It was a heavy burden that they placed on the people. I mean, remember um, in the Jerusalem Council? <laughs> I think it's Peter himself that says that, right? We haven't... <laughs> This has been a burden we haven't been able to bear ourselves. Are we going to now impose this on Gentiles too? What a contrast, right? As I looked at verse 4 here in Matthew 23, what a contrast between what the religious leaders were doing and what Jesus said about himself earlier in Matthew. Do you remember that passage? Matthew chapter 11. Flip back there with me, please. Matthew chapter 11. It's been a while since we've been there, so you, you, you may not remember it. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, this beautiful invitation that the Lord Jesus gives. Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a contrast, right? Between what, verse 23, verse 4 of the religious leaders and what Jesus says. Jesus teaches the true law of God. And knowing that we are sinners, knowing that we fall short of God's standard, Jesus kept the law in our place. And then amazingly in love and grace he died willingly died willingly paid the penalty for our law breaking by suffering and dying on the cross in order to save his people from their sins and then again on the third day he rose showing that he had completed his mission showing that he had live that perfect life that he had secured the righteousness that we need but we fall so short of showing that he had paid the penalty that our sins deserve he had paid it in full meaning that all who trust in him will not have to face God's wrath they will not be thrown into hell and so Jesus can issue this this beautiful invitation come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden Come to me, all of you who recognize your sin, who recognize that you fall short. Come to me and you will find rest. And that invitation still goes out today through the preaching of God's word. And I want to declare that invitation to you today. 
right? We're, we're all made in the image of God. We have God's law written on our hearts. And so we, deep down, we know that we are sinners. We know that we fall short of, of God's standard. We know that we do not give God the, the praise and honor that, that he deserves. We know that our hearts are naturally bent toward rebellion, toward, toward uh, self-worship, <laughs> toward, toward pursuing our own selfish kingdoms rather than giving him the glory he deserves. And so we know by nature that we, we all are sinners separated from God. And so what people sometimes do, and again, you know, it looked a certain way for the, for the Jews in the first century. It, looks, it may look a different way for people today, but bottom line, it's basically the same thing. What people that get convicted about that falling short sometimes try to do is, well, I'll just, I'll just um, kind of up my game here, right? I'll up my game on my rule keeping. I'll up my game on my uh, religious attendance. I'll up my game on my charitable works, right? And there's whole religious systems set up for that, right? And that's the same kind of heavy burden that the Jews were experiencing, right? It's this, it's this burden of trying, of I hope I can do enough, and I hope that in the end, my, my good deeds outweigh my, my bad deeds. But, but man, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a Start to say slugfest. It's a what do I want to say? It's like, it's like you're slogging through that, right? You know, it's it's like wow, I'm, I'm never for sure, and and I, I never have that security. Have I done enough? And 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 what if I, you know, at the last minute mess up? And there's no peace there. It's a burden. It's a burden that you cannot get rid of on your own, but it's a burden that can be cast away through faith in Christ. Because Jesus gives true rest for your soul. Because again, none of us can ever keep the law good enough, can never do enough good works to earn favor with, with a holy God. But Jesus alone kept the law perfectly. And so he alone has the righteousness that we need, that we have to have to be in the presence of God forever in heaven. And he, he offers that to all who will turn from their sins and embrace him as Lord and Savior by faith. And so I think it was last week we said, talked about that great exchange, that when you do that, his righteousness is credited to you and your sins are paid for by him. And then Romans 5 says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know that our sins are forgiven. We know that we're reconciled to God. We know that he loves us and he adopts us into his family. And even though we still, we still struggle with sin, we still fall short, we know that we've been declared righteous in God's court because of Christ. Because we're not, we're not going to stand in our own good works in the end. No, we're going to stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so if there's any here today who are, who you've been feeling that burden, you've been feeling that heavy laden of, man, I, I know I don't measure up and, and I, I want peace with God and, and you know, I've been trying different things, maybe I've been trying d- different distractions, whatever, I, I invite you to Christ. Turn to Christ. Embrace Him by faith and you'll have that peace.
You'll have that peace through Jesus Christ. So what a contrast, right, between what the religious, Jewish religious leaders were, were doing to the people and what Christ offers Jesus invites people to lay down their burden of trying to earn God's favor through law-keeping. And he invites them to experience forgiveness and reconciliation with God through him. So that leads us up through verse 4, and and that leads me to my first application point. Again, you know, sometimes we give all the application at the end. I'm kind of dispersing it throughout the, the sermon here. The first application point. I feel like I'm on pretty safe ground here because Jesus pretty much explicitly says this. I mean, he says it in a rebuke to the the leaders, but I just said, practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. Again, we're looking at this through the lens of, Lord, as Christians, we don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to put a stumbling block before people following Christ. We don't want to bring shame to your name. We want to bring glory to your name. We want to grow in holiness. We want to actually, uh, that we'd have the privilege of you using us to draw people to Christ, not to trip them up. Well, one way we can do that, and again, this is all by God's, great, by God's daily grace, by this, we rely on him for strength to do this, but we need to practice what we preach, right? May we not be like the Pharisees and scribes who didn't practice what they preach. We need to practice what we preach, and of course, who, who am I preaching to <laughs> primarily, right? Who's, the, who's the, the full-time preacher here? Me, right? I need to be very careful. All the elders, all the teachers, we need to be very careful to practice what we preach, right? Practice what we preach. So, I mean, that, that would be, you know, one, one layer of application here. It's very important for elders, for spiritual leaders to practice what they preach. Paul told Timothy to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. God changes people through the word of God. But we know that a preacher's life can either, um, what would we say, kind of reinforce or kind of um, uh, agree with what is being preached, right? Or a preacher's life can contradict. A a spiritual leader's uh, wicked life could contradict what the word of God says, maybe even contradict what he's been teaching and preaching, right? Now we know pastors, teachers, elders, we all have remaining sin just like any other Christian. So maybe we we don't have any kind of uh, (laughs) notions that we're going to never sin, that's for sure. Right? We don't have any kind of unrealistic expectations. But it, Scripture says leaders, pastors should model, should be a, an example. They should model someone who abides in Christ. They should model someone who seeks first his kingdom. They should model to the flock a person who confesses sin, right? Not a person who never sins. That's not realistic. But a person who confesses sin, repents of sin by God's grace, preaches the gospel to themselves, requests God's grace to put that sin to death, to grow. Again, I want to be very careful here when I emphasize the, the modeling and stuff because 
I don't feel like that happens here, but I know it can happen in churches where a, a, a pastor's family should not feel pressure to be perfect, right, or to put on a show. That's the last thing we want to do. But a pastor should model what it looks like. And again, I'm just giving examples of, of, of being an example. Pastor should model what it looks like to love your wife, to try to lead your family spiritually. Again, that's a qualification for an elder in First Timothy, uh, in First Timothy three, right? That he manages his own household well. First Timothy three seven says he's to be well thought of even by outsiders. So a person, my my point is, a person's life is important, right? And so, again, to state it positively, positively, by God's grace, a good example can reinforce the preaching. It can reinforce the teaching of the Word. A good example can kind of flesh out what it looks like to follow Christ. And I remember a couple of years ago when we did a midweek Bible study through Philippians. Remember how, how much uh, Paul talked about examples in that book? He was saying, you know, follow me as, an, as I said an example. Follow Epaphras as an example. I think he held up Timothy as an example as well. So God uses people in the church as examples of, of what it looks like to follow Christ. Not perfectly. So a good example can reinforce that. But again, an ungodly example does much harm. That hypocrisy does much harm. So I, I felt like the first, you know, layer had to be toward preachers and teachers, right? But obviously, and you guys know this, that phrase, practice what you preach, applies to all Christians, doesn't it? It's, been, it's used in the context of all Christians, and right, rightfully so, right? Because we're all proclaiming something. We're all, you know, if we're, we're proclaiming to be a follower of Christ, then our lives should, should match that, Right? So practice what you preach is not only true for pastors, it applies to all believers. It's, for example, it's important for parents <laughs> to practice what we preach, isn't it? Wow. Right? The harm that is done when we, you know, maybe try to teach our kids the gospel, but then live completely uh, contradictory to that. As we teach our kids the gospel, again, we must daily ask for God's grace to live out that gospel before our kids. And again, I want to emphasize this. We know we're going to fail. I mean, if anybody sees us fail, it's our family, right? Because they're around us all the time. They see us at our worst or whatever you want to say. And so as parents, we're not, we have no illusions that we're going to be perfect. No Stumbling and falling and, and sinning in and of itself is not hypocrisy, okay? That's not hypocrisy. Because Christians still struggle with sin. And so what we need to do, for, again, for example, as parents, is if, when we sin in front of our kids, when we sin against our kids, which we're going to do, unfortunately, we need to humbly confess and ask forgiveness, right? And so hypocrisy happens when parents don't do that, right? When they're, when they're telling their kids, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're teaching the truth as, so far as saying, you know, this is what you should do, this is how you're to live, you know, this is, this is right, this is wrong. But then when they don't do that, and they never say anything about that, 
or they hold the kids to a standard they're not willing to follow, right? Or when they sin and they, you know, they blame shift or, or do whatever, sweep it under the rug, kids notice that, don't they? Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> you know. I don't know why I'm thinking of you, David, as I think about this old, older saying, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, Right? Right? We got to hold each other to the right, to the same standards. Parents have a great opportunity to be an example to their kids of what it looks like to love Christ, to worship Christ, to depend on Christ. As, as you guys have heard, truths are not only taught, but they're also caught. Right? And that's talking about our example. As believers, we are not only examples to our kids, but we have opportunities to be godly models to each other as well. As we gather together and share our lives with one another, we have that opportunity to to be examples, again, like we saw in Philippians, of living out the gospel, of following Christ. By God's grace, many of you practice what you preach, and I'm very thankful for that. Because many of you are godly examples to me. Many of you, model, by God's grace, model truth to me. You model trusting God during uncertain times. You model depending on God and persevering through difficult seasons. You model walking by faith and clinging to the promises of God. You model humbly serving others to the glory of God. You model making the gathering of the church a priority. Our, our elderly, our senior saints who, who, have, who have trouble walking, who have trouble getting in and out of cars. We've had several, and we still have several now. But through the years, they, man, when the doors are open, they're going to do all they can to be here. What a model that is for us of the importance of, of the gathered body, of, of not forsaking the assembling, like it says in, in Hebrews. So, we are examples. The question is, are we influencing people toward Christ with our example, or are we pushing them away from Christ? That's what we need to evaluate. And so, may God help us to practice what we preach. Okay, I spent longer on that one than I will on the others, all right? So, don't, don't be nervous. Let's continue to verse 5 then. Jesus says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Now, phylacteries were small leather boxes that the religious leaders wore on their arm or on their forehead. (laughs) And they would put scriptures in these boxes, and they they saw it as a literal way of obeying Deuteronomy 11.18, which says, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine, this is the Lord talking, right? These words of mine in your heart, in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And so they, they had these boxes, and they thought, hey, we're going to do what that verse says. Okay? Fine. And then in verse 5 it says, when Jesus said, then they make their fringes long, he's referring to tassels that they had on their prayer shawls. And the law instructed them to have these tassels in Numbers fifteen thirty seven. Again, this is all in the Old Covenant. This is all... Uh, commands, instructions for the nation of Israel, right? 
Numbers 15.37, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes. So, whether you're talking about the phylacteries, the little boxes, or the tassels, those in and of themselves were good things. They were ways that God had established for the nation of Israel to seek Him and to meditate on His Word. They were like visual reminders for them, right? Good. But what were the religious leaders doing? They took these good things and they used them to try to look good in front of others. They made their phylacteries extra large and their tassels extra long so that as they walked around, people would be sure to notice them. My, my, what? What a large, you know, phylactery you have, you know. Man, you must have a lot of scriptures in that. I bet you've memorized a lot of scriptures, you know. And wow, look at how long your tassel is. You know, you must pray all the time, I bet. See, they did it to look good in front of others. I was trying to think of an example of what that might be, look like today. And I, I didn't spend a ton of time thinking about that. But, it, you know, I was like, you know, who can carry around the biggest Bible, you know, or whatever, you know. I've got the mega study bible you know boom i mean it's fine the study bibles are fine there's nothing wrong with that but if we think that makes us look good then but anyway that even from verse five and again there's some overlap here and that's why i spent so long on practice what you preach because that really kind of sets the tone for all of these but a, a second application point that i draw now from verse five is pursue spiritual disciplines to know god not to look good in front of others Pursue spiritual disciplines to know God, not to look good in front of others. If you remember, Jesus has already called out the Pharisees, the the religious leaders on this. Way back in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He called out the Pharisees and he was uh, teaching his disciples on how they should seek God. Listen to Matthew 6 verse 1, right? This is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Jesus says, speaking to his disciples and to those who were gathered around. Beware of practicing your righteousness, right? That your, your uh, deeds of, of seeking the Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then he starts giving examples of what they do, of how they were doing it wrong. Verse 2, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Then he goes on to the next example, prayer. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he gives the Lord's Prayer and he goes on and gives the third example about fasting. But you get the idea, right? And so again, as we try to apply that today... And lest, lest we fall into hypocrisy, pursue spiritual disciplines to know God, not to look good in front of others. Much of our spiritual disciplines 
are going to be done in private throughout the week, right? Between us and the Lord. And that's what Matthew 6 was talking about. And they're to be done for the purpose of worshiping God, right? Why, why do we read our Bible? Why do we pray? Why, why would we take out a hymnal or, or bring up songs and, and sing praises to God? Because we want to worship God. Because we want to know God. We want to draw near to God. We don't do them to look good in front of our family. <clears throat> we don't do them in order so, oh yeah, I'm going to have a zinger to share at Bible study, right? You know, but everyone's going to be so impressed. No, no. We do them in order to know God and bring glory to Him. And that proper perspective then becomes even more crucial when it comes to our corporate uh, acts of righteousness, our corporate means of grace, our corporate uh, spiritual disciplines, we could say, right? When we sing together, we're not to focus on trying to sound good (laughs) or to look passionate in front of others. Again, if God leads you to raise your hands, raise your hands. That's fine. But don't be thinking about how I'm going to look in front of others. When we pray in front of other believers, we're to concentrate on seeking the Lord, right? If we're up here leading a prayer, on seeking the Lord, on corporately bringing our needs, our praise before the Lord, not worrying about how we look in front of others. Okay, so that's, um, we, could, we could make more examples, but I think you see the, the point. Let's pursue these things in order to know God. So now in verse 6, Jesus continues here back in Matthew 23. He continues to describe how the religious leaders love to be recognized. They love to be exalted by others, right? Verse 6, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And they love greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And then notice the contrast, verse 8, but you, he says, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. So you see, the religious leaders, they were all about self-exaltation. They reveled in having the seats of honor. They reveled in being addressed with these fancy titles. And so Jesus says, don't be doing that. Don't be using, well, you you know elsewhere, he says, you know, don't take the best seat. Take the lowest seat, and then if the guest wants to invite you up, then, then praise God, you know. Be humble. And then as far as titles, he's saying don't use these titles to try to inflate your value. Now, again, as we try to apply this today, we're not saying, oh, man, I should never call someone mister, or I should never call someone doctor, or I should never call someone pastor or teacher. No, we're not saying that. I mean, there's, there's appropriate times to show the respect and honor, right? He's saying don't, but don't, don't use these tiles. It's really more the person, you know, who is the doctor, who is it. He's saying don't, don't insist on these titles to somehow inflate your value, right? And when you're, when you're addressing someone that way, you know, keep in mind that God is the most important person, right? We're not, our hope is not in a man. Our hope's not in a person, it's in, it's in God, it's in Father, Son, Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus commands us not to insist on titles for the purpose of enlarging our ego. Then in verse 11, he sums up this section with this truth. The greatest among you shall be your servant. 
verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Again, common themes that Jesus has already taught these truths during his ministry. And, and part of the reason, I was thinking about why, why is he having to teach this so much? Because the disciples were struggling with this so much, right? Remember? Like in Matthew 18, um, the context, you know, they're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, no, guys. And he brings a child in Matthew 18, 4. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man, referring to himself, right? The one who's been given all authority. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus has been hammering home this point. That in the kingdom of God... The kingdom of God, the values are, are completely different than the values of this world. In the kingdom of God, the one who serves is the one who's, who's great. And that's exactly what the Son of God did, right? Humbled himself to become a servant, even to the point of death. And so our, our third and final application point, I worded this way, again, Pretty straightforward from the text, but do not exalt yourself, rather humbly serve others to the glory of God. Do not exalt yourself, rather humbly serve others to the glory of God. Again, we've already been talking about ways not, uh, you know, to not exalt ourselves, right? But again, as I was trying to think out, you know, fleshing that out a little bit more, how can we live out this truth of not exalting ourselves, of rather humbly serving others to the glory of God? I mean, there's a myriad of ways we can humbly serve each other, right? But for whatever reason, here's, here's a, a couple of ways that came to my mind. Number one, listen well. Listen well. Right? I mean, sometimes, like I've said before, when we think of serving, we think of you know, specific things like, I'm serving in the nursery, which is very, you know, it's great. Those are service things. But it's, it's even in our daily interactions, right? Listen well. When you're in a conversation, don't make yourself the focus. Don't make your, yourself the hero of the conversation or the focus of the conversation, right? Now, again, of course, we're to share our lives with one another, and hopefully, you know, a good conversation. There's the, the back and forth, the give and take, the sharing. I'm not saying that we be fake with people, but you, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've been in those conversations where it's like, you know, maybe you say one thing, and then, boom, that just leads to a whole thing, you know, it goes on for minutes about themselves, you know, and you're just like, well, okay, you know, I mean, and again, by God's grace, I need to try to listen to that, but it's like, wow, you know, I... There was more I could have shared about that if you had maybe wanted to hear, you know. Um, so that's a way we can humbly serve each other. 
Let's make sure we listen well, giving the other person plenty of time to talk, even asking them questions, right? Proverbs talks about that. You know, the wise man, the loving man, seeks to draw out the heart by asking questions. We want to truly understand the needs of, of our brother or sister in Christ or even our, our neighbor, our coworker, our family member who we're talking to. And again, kind of a second ap- example, it's, it's pretty much the, the, the application point itself, but as we work, as we serve, whether it be at home or at church, by God's grace, let's do it as unto the Lord and to bless others. Right? Again, whether it's serving at the church, whether it's going, doing your daily job, whether it's teaching the kids, changing diapers, scrubbing the toilets at home, let's do it for the glory of God. Do it as unto the Lord, the epistles say, right? And, and we do it to bless others. <laughs> oh, I'm picking up my husband's socks again, right? You know? And, and I'm going to do his laundry, and I'm going to bless him. He's going to have clean clothes. Because I want to bless him, I want to love him, and I'm, I want to do it to the glory of God. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, it says. And that's our prayer. May God um, daily give us grace so that we can follow Christ in, in the footsteps of Christ's humble service. And may the life of Christ then be increasingly lived through us that we would not be stumbling blocks to people, that we would keep short accounts when we, when we do sin and fail. And may God be pleased again to use us and, and make us a display of his glory to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, what a, what a contrast he is between, um, uh, the, between him and the religious leaders. And we think of, of all the, the selfish, sinful under shepherds that your word talks about even in Ezekiel and how you yourself came to shepherd your people. You yourself are the good shepherd. You yourself are the righteous king, the humble, the one who's gentle and lowly in spirit. We praise you for that example and, and even what your hum, uh, humble act of service accomplished how it purchased our redemption. May may the life of Christ be increasingly lived through us. Please, Lord, protect your name. May we not be hypocrites. But may we, uh, as our mission statement says, may you give us the opportunity to make disciples as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Will you stand please and we'll sing a song of praise.